Let me, uh, let me begin first by saying thank you. Uh, thank you for voting to call me as, as your pastor. Uh, that, is a, that is a humbling thing, and I know that, uh, that I have big shoes to fill. Someone, um, someone made the remark to me. They said, well, now you know that that, that burden is lifted off your shoulders. You know, the burden of not knowing is lifted off your shoulders. Like, yep, only to be replaced by yet another burden. So, um, a, jo- a joyful burden, um, but know that I know that a, a burden that I take seriously. And um, would thank you for the, the kind comments, uh, especially Samuel King, my biggest cheerleader. Um, I would ask for I would ask for your continuing prayers. Um, you know, when you're the when you're the assistant pastor, you can get away preaching sermon series through the minor prophets because uh, nobody cares. But now, but now that like the, the roles are shifted, I'm in the middle of this sermon series. It's like, well, we're going to have to finish. So um, I'll preach, you know, bigger books later. So turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Zephaniah. Zephaniah. It's okay if those pages in your Bible are stuck together because they've never been opened because this is not a place... Many people go. In fact, that's why we're doing this sermon series through the Minor Prophets, because it's just not a part of the Bible we ever explore. And so the goal of this sermon series is really to just to give us an idea of what God is saying in these books we don't visit much. So uh, Zephaniah, page 789, if you're using the Red Pew Bibles. And I'm going to start reading... In chapter 1, verse 14, and then flip over to chapter 3, verse 8, and to kind of get the whole message of Zephaniah. So if you will, let's pray, and then we'll read God's Word together. Father, you have given even this little book for our instruction. You have given this little book that we would know you, that we would see our Savior, that we would see our sin. God, would you be exalted now? Uh, would you be magnified and glorified in the reading and the preaching of your word? Father, that we would be changed by the power of your spirit because of what we read and what we hear today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Zephaniah 1, verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth, and then flip over to chapter three. We actually start reading in verse eight because it's going to sound familiar to you. 
Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Amen. All right, so we just read that together, and that, that sensation that you should have felt between verses 8 and 9 in chapter, like there should have been some confusion there. Because we read, right, of uh, Zephaniah telling us about the day of the Lord, and that first part that we read in chapter 1, I mean, that's really, really bad news, right? Um, it's scary stuff. And then we continue in chapter 3, and we read more scary stuff, and then all of a sudden, the bad news turns to good news. And it almost makes you want to ask, like, is something wrong with Zephaniah? Is, like, multiple personalities, schizophrenic? Like, what's the, what's the deal with Zephaniah? Okay? He's, he's telling us about the day of the Lord, but it sounds like he's telling me about two days, two different days with very different kinds of news. And so here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine that you are, if you've ever been out west... Um, Texas, Oklahoma, anything like that, it's just flat, all right? And, I, like, I cannot define for you the flatness of the West unless you've really been there. You know, like, here, it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around it, but honestly, it's just flat, all right? There's nothing uh, for miles and miles and miles. So imagine that you're driving on flat terrain uh, towards the West, and then off in the distance, on the horizon, you see a mountain come up. Okay, um, But as you get closer, and when you get to the mountain, you realize it's not just one mountain, but it's actually two. Actually, it's a whole mountain range. All right? That's the vision that the prophets had. So when God gives Zephaniah in the Old Testament a vision of the day of the Lord, he sees from a great distance this mountain. All right? And he sees these two sides. He sees fire and gloom and wrath and mercy and grace. 
And it's not until we reach the New Testament that we realize that day is actually spread out over the course of many days. That the day actually begins when Jesus arrives. Now, there's still the wrath and fury are still, still there. The grace and the mercy are still there. But our vision becomes expanded when we hit the New Testament and when we see Jesus. So if, that, if Zephaniah sounds jarring to you, that's why. Zephaniah is seeing a vision from a distance. And what he sees is that the day of the Lord is coming and that you need a hiding place, right? One, because the day of the Lord brings judgment with it, right? The day of the Lord brings judgment on the proud and complacent. So let's go back to chapter 1. One of the first things right there in verse 17 that you see is that, right, he says, I will bring distress on mankind, on humanity. So God's judgment is universal. Uh, It does not matter. I mean, you can, whether you believe in the God of the Bible, whether you worship and serve other gods, or whether you don't believe in God at all, God's judgment is universal, right? Uh, You don't have to believe, I guess what I mean by that is, you don't have to believe in this God to face his judgment. Because he is the creator of the universe. He is the one true and living God. And so his judgments are universal. They they fall out over all of mankind, right? Verse 18, all the earth will be consumed. If you look in 1 verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. And so God's judgment doesn't just apply to his people. It doesn't just apply to those who call on his name. It applies to everyone. And here's how we often approach, right? When we talk about God's wrath, in our, in our modern day, there's a couple of ways that we approach this. And the first, the first way that we approach it is we say, you know, I prefer not to think about God this way, right? God's, God's wrath, you know, that's just not, that's not the way that I, that, I, that I want to think about God. And that makes sense. Let's be honest, that makes, that makes a lot of sense because this is not the stuff of Hallmark cards, all right? This is not... This is not the sentimental way that we want to think about God. Like when we're choosing our religions, okay, um, this this just doesn't sound good. You wouldn't put this in the brochure, okay? Uh, So that makes sense, but it also doesn't fit reality, right? It makes sense that we don't want to think about God this way, but it doesn't fit reality. You You can prefer to ignore these parts of the Bible if you like, Um but it doesn't make them any less true. Just because you don't want to think about it doesn't make it unhappen. It doesn't make it any less true. And what's worse, if, you, if you're in that position, well, it's a really, it's a really terrible position to be in. Um, imagine, uh, imagine that you live on the coast, okay? And, uh, and you walk out your front door one morning and you see that your neighbor is like throwing all of his possessions in the truck. His wife, his wife is in there. His kids are in there. They're crying. I mean, you can tell there's a sense of urgency and emergency, right? And so you're like, hey, uh, what you doing? And he said, didn't you hear? There's a, a Category 5 hurricane bearing down on our, on our city. Like it's going to be here in a few hours. We have to evacuate. And you say, oh, you know, I heard about that, but I don't really believe in 200-mile-an-hour winds. 
I don't, storm surge, flood, I just don't, you know, I prefer to think that the weather doesn't do that. So, forgive me, I'm not trying to make fun of anybody, but um, (laughs) do you see the danger you put yourself in when you hold to that position? It doesn't make a hurricane any less true because you choose not to believe it. And so, if, if the way that you deal with God's wrath is you say, well, I just I prefer not to think about God in that way, <laughs> that's okay, but I want you to know the danger that you put yourself in because God reveals himself in that way. Um, the second way, and this is kind of a cousin to that position, is that, uh, and this is usually held more by people t- typically in the church or that are familiar with the Bible, they will say, well, that's just the Old Testament God, Right? The wrath and doom and gloom is just in the Old Testament. I prefer to focus on the message of the New Testament, which is grace and love and peace and mercy. Okay, fair enough. I just did, I could, I did a quick search this morning. This is not scholarly. Uh, this was not thorough. It was just a quick search. The word for steadfast love, let's talk about the Old Testament first. The word for steadfast love, which uh, is the way that God most often describes his love for his people, It occurs in the Old Testament, let's see, 192 times, okay? Contrast that, the word wrath, and I didn't, I wasn't even able to search like God's wrath or wrath of God. I just searched wrath, period. That occurs in the Old Testament 170 times. So even without being really specific, love still trumps wrath in the Old Testament, the Bible, the Old Testament talks about God's love more than it talks about wrath, okay? Um, you could probably do a little bit more digging, but that's just on the front level. Okay, so, so wrath is not, the only, is not the only thing in the Old Testament. And um, the good news is not the only thing in the New Testament. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5. First Thessalonians 5.1, uh, Paul here is dealing with in this church, there were some people who had said that the day of the Lord had already come or that it wasn't going to happen. And so he is reassuring the believers and he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, unexpectedly. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Keep turning to Second Peter chapter 3. Peter dealing with some of the same issues, some confusion about the day of the Lord. Second Peter 3, 8 through 12. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be 
in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. So there you see right there two apostles both testifying to the fact that there will be a day of the Lord, the New Testament, talking about a day of coming, judgment and wrath. Let's look at one more, Revelation chapter 6. And this one to me is the most shocking. If you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, John, who wrote it, is being given visions of what the end will be like, how things are going to play out. Revelation 6, verse 12, and this is, this is his description, one of his descriptions of the last day. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, <clears throat> and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The wrath of the Lamb. Uh, usually we don't picture, right, when we, I mean, the Lamb in Revelation, that's Jesus, right? He's the Lamb who was slain, the sacrifice. And so when we, when we picture the, wrath, the, the Lamb, we don't picture wrath, and yet that's exactly how he's revealed in Revelation, that on the last day, Jesus will come in wrath. Jesus himself, the, the epitome of grace and mercy, also comes in wrath. And so judgment is in both the Old and the New Testament. Then the final approach we probably take to God's wrath, at least the last one we'll look at, is, well, but that doesn't really apply to me. Uh, yeah, I've made my mistakes, but overall I'm a pretty nice guy. So, you know, all of this stuff about black suns, mountains fall on me, hurricane, earthquake, that's not, that's not me. Um, so let's define why, let, so to answer that position, let's define why God's wrath is being poured out in the first place. Uh, go back to Zephaniah. I hope you held your finger there. 789. God says, I will bring distress on mankind. This is 117. So that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. The reason God's wrath is coming is because of sin. Uh, and if you, to define sin, let's talk about that rebellion, okay? God's wrath is coming against people because, as he puts it in verse 6, 1, 6, they have turned back from following the Lord. They do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So you can be as nice as you like if you do not seek the Lord, right? Then God's wrath comes against you. Some of the other ways Zephaniah, some of the other sins that Zephaniah lists, chapter 1, verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah, against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So these are God's people. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. 
those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Molech. So is your heart tied to anything but the Lord? Do you worship and serve anything but the Lord? If you do, friend, that's a, that, that merits God's wrath because he alone desires to be worshipped and served. He alone deserves to be worshipped and served. And so, um, as Bob Dylan says, right, we are, we, are all, we are all made to worship. And if you don't worship the Lord, you're going to worship something, right? Bob Dylan, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. We're all made to worship. We're wired that way. And because we're proud and we're broken, we want to worship anyone but God. We don't like his demands. We don't want to worship him. And so we have gods of our own making, right? And that doesn't just apply to the Old Testament people. It applies to us. Work, family, money, sex, drugs, you name it, right? You can worship it, and it can take control of your life. You can serve it. So that's, and that's the funny thing about idolatry. You think that, we think that, okay, if I'm not going to serve the Lord, I'm too proud to serve the Lord to give my life to him, I'm going to make my own idol. But here's the way worship works. Even if you choose your own, it still enslaves you. You do not have control over that idol, Right? And what ends up happening, like it happened in Jerusalem, you bow down to, you're trying to bow down to two gods at the same time. And the Lord wants an undivided heart. There's something else, one more thing I want to mention. Chapter 1, verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Right? So... There's idolatry, but then there's also complacency. Just, it doesn't matter. And teenagers, this is probably where you are. I'm not saying this is you, but, right, apathy is, uh, is the mark of your generation. And I was there, okay, I remember it, right? This idea of like, eh, who cares, right? Who cares what the Lord says? He's not, he's not going to do anything bad or good. And God says, that, complaint, that complacency will kill you, right? So... Um, that's the message of the prophets the whole time, right? We've heard it before. Uh, Zephaniah is preaching the last days of the kingdom. He's actually the last prophet before the exiles come. The city is about, uh, the city's about to be destroyed, and he's preaching, and yet people just don't care. Is that you? Right? Is that, is that you? Because that's the bad news, that God's wrath is universal, and it comes against the proud and the idolatrous and the complacent. And that's what the day of the Lord looks like. But that's not the only aspect of the day of the Lord. Then there's also this aspect we read about in chapter 3, that the day of the Lord brings rejoicing for those who seek refuge in God. I want you to notice this about verse 9. Not only is God's judgment universal, it applies to every nation, but God's mercy is universal. It applies to every nation. It does not belong uh, simply to the Jews. It belongs also to the Gentiles, right? 
Because on the day of the Lord, God's mercy will go forth to everyone. That's exactly what uh, Jesus and the apostles did. came first to the Jews, and then it spread like wildfire into the Gentile world, right? So God's mercy is universal, just like God's judgment. Let's uh, skip to verse 14, right? God's mercy is universal. Actually, this is important. I'm sorry. Verse 11. God's mercy removes our shame. On that day, the day of the Lord, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me, because I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Okay, so after God's judgment, right, he removes the proud and he leaves behind a humble people, a people who seek refuge in him. And what are those people like? Verse 13, they will do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. Check this out. All of the things, all of the sins that led God to move in wrath not seeking him, being proud, speaking lies. They are the very things that God will correct. He will, he will make a people from all of the nations to seek him, to speak truth, to be humble, to seek righteousness. So God gives us the very thing that we need to survive. God gives us the very thing that we need, the very things, the very character we have to have if we're going to be in his presence. But there's more. God's mercy leads to rejoicing. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Let me read that again. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Who removes the judgment? The very one who gives it. The only one who has the authority to take it away. You cannot remove the judgment from yourself. The Lord removes the judgment. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So we rejoice because God conquers our sin and conquers our enemies. We can shout and we can sing because of the work that God is going to do. But did you notice that we're not the only ones who sing? On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Some of, some of us need to make room in our image of God, as we already said, for wrath. But then you also must make room in your view of God for a God who rejoices with singing over you. Can you, can you fathom that? I mean, does that fit? 
with your definition and your mind of, of who God is, that, he's, that he actually can rejoice over you, that he sings over you. It makes me think of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells in Luke 15. If you're familiar with the story, you have a rebellious son who takes his, his share of the inheritance and he runs and he, and he leaves home. And he spends it all and he realizes what an idiot he's been and so he comes home. And on his way home as he's thinking through, man, how am I going to tell dad? I'm sorry. Just let me be a slave, right? The father is on the porch looking for him. And he runs out to him, right? He, he gathers up his robe so that he can run. You ever seen an old man run? It's undignified. And that's exactly what this father does. He runs to meet his son. He kisses him. He hugs him. And he welcomes him home and he throws him a party. That's the God of Christianity. That's the Lord who removes the judgments. That's the God who rejoices over his people, over his sons and daughters with loud singing. And so that forces us to ask the question, how can God move like that from anger, from wrath to rejoicing? How can God remove his own judgment from sinners like you and me? And this is what he does in Jesus. Jesus endures the wrath of the Father so that you can hear rejoicing. Matthew Smith puts it this way in his song, Hiding Place. On him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk this world to hell. He bore it for a sinful race to make himself our hiding place. Friend, the day of the Lord is coming. Will you hear wailing and crying? Or will you hear singing and shouting and rejoicing? The day of the Lord is coming. Do you have a hiding place? Let's pray. Father, it is always hard to speak of your wrath, and we don't do that flippantly or lightly, and neither do you. And yet we must because it is the truth. And it points us to our great need of Jesus. It points us and shows us just how far from you we are and how deeply we need a Savior. So, Lord, I pray that you would lead us again to that point, that we would rejoice, not in how good we've done it this week, but that we would rejoice in Jesus, in his work, to save us from our sins. We ask it in his name. Amen.